today we continue with our studies on uh, the assurance of grace and salvation. And uh, uh, you remember last week uh, we, we dealt with a number of things regarding assurance. Um, we began by asking the question, what causes lack of assurance? And uh, we saw a number of things. Uh, who can, I need the microphone, so if you could uh, pass it around. So who can tell us very briefly what, what are some of the causes of lack of assurance of salvation? And then uh, uh, after that, we, we dealt with um, the possibility, which is what we are picking up on uh, this morning. But let, first, let's, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we praise your name this morning for your loving kindness and mercy. We thank you, dear Lord, that Christ Jesus, your son, saved us from our sins. Uh, he redeemed us from uh, all lawlessness, from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, and not with uh, perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. So we praise your name this morning, Lord, for you have also given us your spirit who indwells us and uh, who is the seal to guarantee our inheritance, who sanctifies us and who continues to work in us so that uh, we are more and more assured as the spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are uh, children of God. So we pray that, Lord, that uh, uh, this time together would be a blessed hour. We would uh, learn from your word. Uh, we would be more assured and we would see the fruit that come out of it. Please hear us, bless us, Lord, for we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so do we have the microphones ready? What are some of the causes of lack of assurance for those who were here last Sunday? Uh, yes, Arnold. We had erroneous doctrine. Sorry? E erroneous doctrine. Erroneous doctrines, yes. Uh-huh. What else? Uh, yes, Susan? Loving sin. Uh, loving your sin. Loving your sin, correct. Love of sin. Mm -hmm. Unbelief, yes. And what else? Yes, where there is a failure or poor use of the means of grace, that will contribute further to lack of assurance of grace and salvation. Um, then I also pointed out to you the, that assurance is possible. And uh, we began by, uh, by, by realizing that there, are, there is a danger of a false assurance. And um, we saw that there are many types of those who, fail, uh, who fall into false assurance because that's the other extreme where people completely lack assurance. Um, and what are some of the types of uh, those who fall into false assurance? Yeah, yes, Susan? Yes. Uh, people who think that they are saved and yet they are not, temporary believers, 
And uh, from the scriptures, we saw an example of someone who was a temporary believer. Who remembers that person? Uh, yes, Arnold. Simon the magician. Yes, Simon Magus. He, the Bible says that he believed and he was even baptized. And he continued with Philip. But we saw that he was a temporary believer. And so his assurance was really nothing. Uh-huh. Another type of, uh, of people who may have false assurance. They unregenerate. If you have assurance and yet you're not really born again, that's a false assurance. Uh, also, those who are under deception due to erroneous teachings. And then we also considered self-engendered uh, notions or convictions uh, where people would psych themselves up to believing that they are saved even though they are not. Or, uh, one of the examples that I gave is people who respond to the so-called altar call. And uh, they repeat the preacher's prayer, and they are assured by the preacher, you are saved, do not doubt it. Uh, you know, look for a Bible-believing church and join it. That's what they say in crusades, isn't it? Especially these uh, international evangelists when they come around. That's a kind of a device they give people. But they also assure them that they are saved, even though they do not know. They're told not to doubt it. Now, this morning, then, we want to, uh, to pursue, uh, pursue further the possibility of true assurance. Uh, that's what we're dealing with, uh, because the confession... If you look at the confession, it deals with those different uh, aspects. Um, it says, uh, although temporary believers and other unregenerate persons may be deceived by erroneous self and jaded notions into thinking that they are in God's favor, in a state of salvation, false and perishable hopes indeed. Yet, listen to this. All who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to conduct themselves in all good conscience according to his will, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace. They may rejoice in hope of the glory of God, knowing that such a hope will never put them to shame. Um, so, yet who, those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to conduct themselves in all good conscience according to his will. So that's the, the character, the character of those who may have true assurance. Number one, they truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, their relationship with the Lord is described in terms of love, they love him, that is, they love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. And, and thirdly, they are endeavoring to conduct themselves in all good conscience according to his will. So let's deal with each one of them, the character of those who have true assurance. First of all, we are talking about those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's turn to John chapter 2, 
verse 23 to 25, and someone else to Acts chapter 8, verse 13, and then someone else, James 2, 14 to 26. Those are the passages that uh, I want us to consider. Uh, who'd like to go first? Uh, John 2, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 23 and 25. You pass the microphone over to Arnold. Uh, he can read that for us. John 2, 23 to 25. Who's going to read for us Acts 8, 20, uh, 8 13? Susan. And then uh, someone else to take James 2, 14 to 26. That's a lengthy passage. Alex? Right, so let's turn there. Um, John chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. Go ahead, uh, Arnold. Right. So there has to be true belief. It's not simply, you know, uh, that you believe in the Lord uh, by just a, a mere profession, a profession of it. It's that not only do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he also believes in you. Because that's a the language there in John 2. Uh, you notice that they... Uh, the, the, these people, when they saw the signs, they believed. The Bible says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not believe on them. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. So there has to be true belief, <clears throat> a sincere faith. Acts 8.13, Susan. Right. Was that true belief <clears throat> with Simon? No, as we've already seen. And then if you turn to James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26, Alex. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for their body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you... Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Mm. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was, also, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by the works when he received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
as the body apart from the spirit is dead, also faith apart from works is dead. Thank you. So to truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there must be a good knowledge, there must be full trust and confidence that the gospel promises are true for me. So we believe in Christ for he's the only mediator between God and man. He's the only way, the only truth, the only life. And no one can get to the Father except through him. He's the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved. So this faith in Jesus Christ, which is, so we are justified or we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. But this justifying faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by good works as the evidence that you have truly believed in Jesus Christ. And that's what James is describing there. It must be accompanied by such graces of faith as love and good works. So it's not that we are saved by faith plus good works. No, we are saved by faith alone. But having that faith alone in Christ alone will evidence itself. It will produce fruit. And that fruit then is the fruit of good works. It's a grace of good works and love. So then if one says that he is saved, that he believes, and he sees his brother in need, and he does not help, that's not faith. Faith must be accompanied by good works to prove that you're truly saved. You need to understand that very well. Because people tend to pit uh, Paul against James, and yet, James is writing to brothers. He keeps on saying that. That's what he says there in chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers. He says that in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers? And you can see the examples being given are examples of uh, Abraham and Rahab after they had believed. So, While we are saved by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, yet this saving faith is never alone, but it is accompanied by good works, otherwise it is dead. And dead faith cannot save anyone. That's the first thing. That's the first character of those who are indeed, uh, those who have true assurance. They truly believe in the Lord Jesus. And then secondly, their relationship with the Lord is that they love him. They love Christ in sincerity. They love Christ in sincerity. You know, there is, there is a professed love which is not a sincere one. And John, uh, uh, John talks about it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone does not love the Lord, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. So faith works in love. Love for the Lord 
And so you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And your neighbor, you love your neighbor as yourself. So that's, that's what we're talking about. You, love, you sincerely love Christ. And if you love Christ, will you not love his bride, the church? Christ loved the church, and so should you. And then thirdly and finally, the character of those who have true assurance is that they are endeavoring to conduct themselves in all good conscience according to his will. Now, these people who have true assurance of faith are serious with holiness. These are people who are serious about holiness. They want to live a godly life in this present evil age. For we know that, as Paul writes to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and training us to renounce all worldly passions. So please, Christians are people who pursue holiness. Paul lived in good conscience before God and before men as he testifies. And very quickly, I want us to turn to look at those areas where Paul says very explicitly how he lived with his conscience. Acts chapter 23, verse 1. Who's going to read that for us? Acts 23, verse 1. Um, looking for someone else who has not read. Ed, Ed, Edward, Megan, I'll pass the microphone right next to you, Will Buffos. Uh, who else? Uh, unlike 24 verse 16, Acts 24 verse 16. Uh, you can give it to Tito and then uh, pass on the microphone to, after Tito, get, get to 2 Corinthians 1 16. Uh, that would be to Alex. And then finally, I need one more person. Uh, yes, Derek, you take 2 Timothy 1, 13, uh, 1, 3. 2 Timothy 1, 3. Look at how Paul lived. Acts 23, verse 1, uh, Edu. Acts 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Can you say that with Paul? Are you able to say that I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That's what we should endeavor to be and to live. If you're constantly uh, having your conscience pricked by sin, you know that there are, there are sins that you're doing, then you end up with um, a seared conscience. That's about the worst thing that you can, you can have. Acts 24, verse 16. Listen to Paul again. Go ahead, Tito. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Right. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. This is Paul. 
It's good to have a good conscience. It's not enough to have a good conscience only before God and not before man. Yes, you can have the right theology of Quran Dio, that you live in the presence of God, but obviously people may not know what's going on in your heart. But it's necessary to have a good conscience before God, both God and man. And then uh, Alex, read for us 2 Corinthians 1.16. 2 Corinthians 1.16. That is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. I'll keep reading. Therefore, I was not facilitating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes and no, no at the same, uh, no at the same time. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy was that yes, was not yes and no, mm. but yes in him. Yes. Thank you. So you see, then um, when you say yes, your yes must be yes and your no must no. And that's what uh, um, the Lord taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's what James picks up. Uh, in James chapter... 5 verse 12, he deals with oaths. And he says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. So when you make a promise, I will be there at sin. This is where Kenyans need to be biblical, need to be true Christians. I'll be there at 10. At 10, 12, no one stand up and no communication. That's very frustrating, especially if you're on the receiving end. I don't think it's very frustrating when you're late. Because if it was so frustrating if uh, when you're late, then you would not be late next time. But brethren, we need to be people who say yes and keep to that. Anything less than that is from the evil one. We have to live in all good conscience before God and before men. Second Timothy 1.3. Derek. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Right. So this is someone who is dying, and he insists that uh, he seeks to live with a clear conscience, with a clear conscience. So that's the character of those who may have true assurance. They truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, and they endeavor to conduct themselves in all good conscience according to the will of God. So if you're not going to have that kind of a character, then assurance will be a mirage, because your conscience would either be accusing you or excusing you.
Now, let me then move to the second thing about what may we be assured. What is the object of assurance? It is the certainty that they are in a state of grace. How sure are you, how certain are you that you are in a state of grace? This is the content of our assurance. It's that we have full confidence. We have certainty. We have, we are sure. We have assurance that we are in a state of grace. That's what we are talking about. We know that we rest on the love of God the Father in which he loved us in the beloved before the foundation of the world. We know and fully trust in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we are fully assured of the indwelling spirit, the indwelling of the spirit, and his continuing work of grace, work of sanctification, and that he is our helper and comforter. He never leaves us, and he makes sure to get us to glory. So this is what you're talking about. We are in a state of grace. To be in a state of grace is to know that it is not that we've done enough good works for God to smile and say, yeah, you deserve salvation. It's not that, because no one does. It's not that we've done enough good works to be re rewarded with salvation. We don't boast in ourselves. We don't boast in, in the arm of flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh, as Paul says to the Philippians. We don't rest on any human merit, but on Christ, on grace. We are confident that God has begun to deal with us graciously in his Son, in Christ. And because it is grace, because it is grace, he will continue with it. Grace will not run out. He will continue to show grace to us until glory. And so Paul tells the Romans, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we rejoice in joy inexpressible. That's there in Romans 5. And you could turn there and look at it. He says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It is Trinitarian. There is no assurance if you're not fully trusting in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have, the, we have um, peace with God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
So then the question is, do you have certainty? Do you have assurance? Do you have certainty that you're in a state of grace? Remember, what we are dealing with here is not that there are those who have assurance. It is, do I have assurance that I'm in a state of grace? So we are not discussing facts about, you know, other people. We are talking about ourselves. And so what we're going to do then is I want to ask you, um, I want to see how honest you will be about your assurance or lack of it. Have you ever struggled with assurance? Or let me just put it out there. Who has struggled with assurance of grace and salvation? Who? Okay, we have one here, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And this is very relevant, isn't it? That's why we're dealing with it. Now, I need to admit that if you haven't struggled with assurance, it may be an indicator that you may not be saved. That's how serious it is. You know, the devil will never tell you to doubt your salvation. He wants you to believe that you are saved, even when you're not. The devil wants you to be in that state where you, you know, you psych yourself up, whether through a preacher or yourself, and really you think, I'm fine, I'm fine. Even when you fall into sin, I'm fine. But that's not the way to live our Christian lives. So there has to be an aspect of struggling with the assurance that you're in a state of grace. Because you see, when a true child of God sins, he's going to be vexed by that sin. Your soul will be disturbed. You will not be happy that you've sinned against God who so loved you before the foundation of the world. You will not be happy. There's no way you can sin against God and your conscience does not trouble you. And so when, when you're grieved by your sins, what do you do? Paul talks about grief for sin. In 2 Corinthians 7, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. I rejoice. Not because you are grieved, but because you are grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Now listen to this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
I've been in, in many, I've been in trouble with many people multiple times when I've rebuked people, someone for living in, in sin. And um, the world in which we live in, if you call out sin openly, uh, you are accused of playing holier than thou, isn't it? Uh, holier than thou, that's an accusation that constantly come. Uh, and sometimes people would say that you are putting them in, in a state of depression and anxiety. You, you are troubling them. And so, you know, uh, some preachers try not to mention people's sins when they come to church because they don't want to vex them. But see what Paul did here. He wrote them a letter, a letter that was very, very fiery. It was hot. And when they read it, they all were very anxious and worried about their souls. They were grieved. And Paul says, I rejoiced. Well, I didn't rejoice that these guys were so grieved. That's not what I was rejoicing about. But I was rejoicing that when they got my admonition through the letter, they were grieved as to repent. And so many times you find that people, when you go to admonish someone, they very quickly pick up a problem with the way you did it, the manner, the method. They don't deal with the content. You see, he came to me and he was so unloving. He was very harsh. Okay, he may have been very harsh, but do you deal with your sin? Now, of course, I'm not in any way encouraging anyone to not speak the truth in love. Of course, we all must speak the truth in love. But, but it's not so much, usually, it's not so much how you speak, really. It's a content of what you're bringing. They don't want you to mention what they've done. Anyway, so that's the character of those who have true assurance. They truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, love the Lord and endeavor to conduct themselves in all good conscience. And they are assured that they are in a state of grace. Now, what's the fruit of such assurance. What's the fruit of such assurance? What do you think comes with you very, very confident of being in a state of grace? Is there anything that that does to you as a person? Yes? What is it? Microphones? What do you think is the fruit of assurance? Anyone? Okay, let me ask the question then in a different way. Would you want to be assured of being in a state of grace? Yes? Would you want to be assured of salvation? Yes. Why? What do you hope to get out of it? Peace? Right? That's what we read in, in Romans 5, 5, 1 and 2. 
since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So you're reconciled with God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But not only peace with God, the peace of reconciliation, or the peace that comes out of salvation, but you also have peace of God. Those are two different things. Peace with God is that you're reconciled with God. Peace of God is that you are not anxious. And so Paul tells the Philippians, be anxious of nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And then, peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So you have peace. What, else, what does peace come with? When you're at peace, what else? Is there anything else that come with this peace and comfort? Yes? Faith? Well, faith, this, we are not dealing with the fruit. I would say faith is a root. We're talking about the fruit, the outcome of this assurance. Faith is what leads to assurance. That's the foundation. But then now that you have assurance, what would you get out of it? What would you eat out of that tree? Yes? Joy. Why joy? And again, it's there in Romans 5. Because we have peace with God, it goes on to say that we rejoice. It says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And more than that, we also rejoice in sufferings. The joy there is uh, double-sided. It's joy in hope of the glory of God. And then more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why does he say more than that? You would think that joy, rejoicing in hope of the glory of God is a greater thing. But it's not as conspicuous as rejoicing in our sufferings. And then he, say, he goes on to say, and hope does not put us to shame. So the other one is hope. It's hope. So a hope of being glorified on the last day, which is so sure that they can begin to rejoice now because we can, re we can begin to rejoice now because it depends upon not us, but the, but the God of grace. And there is no possibility of failure. On his part. And the confession says, they may rejoice in hope of the glory of God, knowing that such a hope will never put them to shame. Exactly what Paul says there. And this hope does not put us to shame, Romans 5 5, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Is there any, any question or comment so far?
All right. If not, then we'll move to the second aspect of assurance. <clears throat> so number one, we have seen that assurance is possible. Okay. Uh, Ken, you have a question? Go ahead. So it was in regard to your question with um, with uh, studying assurance, mm -hmm. whether we uh, one will be a believer. So I have a hypothesis or theory. Okay, go ahead. In that, um, depending on based on um, how or about um, it, um, in the sense that with different Christians with whom I've interacted with, especially those who have struggled with assurance, okay, mostly it's uh, I found it this way. Um, for those who have been brought up in proper Christian homes and then became a Christian, um, it has been their life all so that uh, at times it may be confusing at their point of conversion, so that uh, the, the struggle would come because that had, has been their way of life since the beginning. Um, and then for one who became a Christian in their later years, especially who, uh, well, uh, just, okay, we're in, we're in darkness probably. If I were to put they, were, they were not brought up in Christian homes. Yeah, Christian homes. They had no, they had no anchor for it or any, or even just assumption. Um, a proper change in their lives, like when they came, when they encountered the gospel, so that there was a very, very big difference from what they were and what they are now. Yeah, um, there would be that struggle. Yes, see. But usually the 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 assurance is uh, more solid as it were. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think there is some truth in that. That um, if you've been brought up in a Christian home, uh, the 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 certainty that something radical has happened is not very obvious. Uh, to children who've been brought up in a Christian home. My own daughter Ruth has been really struggling in that area. So she professed faith, but then there are times when she would just not be sure that uh, she is uh, truly converted. Um, but then if there was a radical transformation, <clears throat> like for my case, uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't even going to church, and for many years, I didn't go to church. But then this, this particular Sunday morning, uh, I decided to go look for a friend who could only be found at a particular church with no desire to go to church, really. Just go look for my friend and tell him that there is a job somewhere that if he's interested, he can apply. That's what, that's what took me to church. And I, w I was not planning to go in. I was going to wait for him at the notice board, as he had said. Now, it began drizzling and a uh, bit uncomfortable, and I thought, I'll just go in. Uh, but uh, I had my own, my own uh, mind, my own understanding of what, what Christians were and did. And uh, my, 
fallen uh, understanding was that all Christians were hypocrites and there was no point in wasting my time in hypocrisy. So anyway, when I went in, I thought, they don't look like hypocrites, you know, and uh, the word of God was preached. I had the gospel and the Lord saved me and, and it was a very radical transformation. I was aware the Lord helped me to see the, the, the darkness of my heart, uh, the, the pride, the sin that, that I was living in. And uh, when I called upon the name of the Lord for salvation, at that very moment, the Lord gave me such peace that I could see that, no, this is not the same person that, that I was. And so when I walked out, I wanted to go and tell my unbelieving friends, I have become a Christian. I've been saved. And all this time, they, you know, when I, when I said that, they were like, you were not a Muslim, were you? You know, they didn't quite understand that something radical had happened. And so from that moment, I would say it was easier for me to identify with that transformation uh, because I had not lived like that. So there is some truth there. But then even, uh, even for both cases, I would say those who are truly converted, they would still need to constantly examine themselves. And when we examine ourselves, we'd constantly see our flaws, our failures. We probe our thoughts, our attitudes, even before we come to our words and our deeds. And we know that there is something we need to change. There is something that needs to, 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 to change in our lives. And that does not give us peace uh, as such. It, 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 it does trouble us. How can I be a Christian and I have such propensity to lying? How can I be a Christian and I so easily covet? And that's what Paul talks about there in Romans 7. You know, he says, he speaks about the, the way the flesh in him, uh, the passions of the flesh are excited in him so that he, he does things that he shouldn't do. Yes, uh, Tito. Yeah, on that point, uh, but one was being raised in a Christian as opposed to one who wasn't. I think uh, the one who has been raised in a Christian home should be helped to understand that even in their lives, something radically different has happened. That they were also dead in their trespasses and sin. They were, that they were following the devil. That they were sinful at core. So that the same grace that uh, uh, powerfully worked in this uh, other person who was not raised in a Christian home is still that same grace that has worked in the life of this who has been raised in the Christian home. So that uh, there, after that, uh, there is that trust in Christ Jesus yeah. for both of them. It's not a different salvation that was given. True. 
to a line who is not raised in Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, the way I see it, uh, uh, yes, you're right. The way I see it is that those who've been brought up in a Christian home have had their consciences constantly washed by the water of the word. And so their consciences are more sensitive to sin than those who have not been raised up in a Christian home. Uh, if you've been raised up in a Christian home, it could be that cursing was the order of the day. But uh, if you were raised in a Christian home, that could not be allowed. And so over the years, the conscience becomes fairly clear. Um, so when the gospel, the light of the gospel dawns, uh, there is no much uh, 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 darkness to wash as it were with the conscience. Uh, but the conscience is very, very sensitive to the things of God, very sensitive to sin. And that's what then contributes to uh, that sensitivity and even leading to an aspect of more uncertainty with assurance. But eventually with growth, uh, as they grow in grace, they would completely rely on Christ and his finished work on the cross and rest on his merit only. Uh, but with, with, um, at, the, at the earlier stage of life, that lack of um, uh, assurance is common. But then you would see that later on in life, they would be more assured as they grow spiritually than those others. Because the, the, the foundation was already laid well. And so that's an encouragement to you parents to... Uh, teach your children the Word of God daily. As you feed them, as you feed their bodies that will eventually die, make sure to feed their souls. Uh, bring the Word of God to them. By all means, catechize them. Give them those doses of truth daily so that uh, like Eunice and Lois uh, to Timothy, that faith which dwells in you would also be translated to your children. Another comment, uh, Susan? As we were talking about this, it occurred to me that children who grow up in Christian homes are somewhat like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Sorry? They're like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They grow up knowing all the rules. They grow up knowing how to look good. Yeah. They grow up knowing how to act good. And sometimes... It, even though it makes us sensitive to sin, it can also make us more hypocritical. More hypocritical because yeah. we look good on the outside and the rest of the world goes, well, you're a good kid. What, what do you need to be saved for? Right. And so it can cause some of that false assurance. And then when we are actually saved, we doubt that the salvation was real because why did it change that much? I didn't cuss before. I didn't do this before. I and so some of the things that someone who went through a radical transformation goes through are more subtle and harder to see from the outside mm. for someone who was grown up in the church. So I think the thing that we need to make sure we're teaching our children as we go through the catechism is to really help our children see that the little things yeah. are just as bad to God yes. as the big things. And it doesn't matter if the only thing you ever did was talk back to mommy. 
Mm -hmm. you're still a sinner dead in your sins. Yeah. Yeah. Just like the guy who murdered somebody. It's, mm -hmm. it's not any different to God. It all breaks his holy law. Right. That's right. And that's the hardest thing for little kids to really understand, especially if they grow up being taught to do all <laughs> of the right things. Mm. Yeah, and, and so then on that basis, I would say parents, uh, Christian parents, as you bring up your children, uh, don't come to me as soon as your child say that they want to be baptized. Uh, you know, uh, probe it further and um, consider their profession more keenly. Uh, sometimes parents can be very unwise because of their eagerness to see their children saved and because of their constant prayer for them to be saved, which is good, then you're praying. As soon as the child says, Daddy, I believe that I'm now saved. Oh, then we'll go and talk with the pastor and have you baptized. Please don't do that. Uh, they can very easily be deceived. And so you need, it's not, it's not going to go away. You know, because some parents have this fear that, well, if you don't strike when the iron is hot, then it might be cold. No, please. If the work of grace has been done in their heart by God, it's not going to disappear. They cannot be discouraged away from salvation. They cannot be. So even though my daughter professed faith last year, actually ahead of Asaph, um, I, I still haven't, uh, uh, you know, brought her forth for baptism because she needs to be there. She, she needs to be herself assured. And I must not be manufacturing that assurance for her, you know. So we have to be careful, you know. Um, a friend of mine uh, told, told me recently that three of his children were converted and they were all baptized. And honestly, I was very worried because these are very young children. But I haven't had time to talk with him about it. Um, you know, now I'm not, I'm not their pastor, but still I'm wondering, uh, three children, all just about the same age, profess faith all at the same time, and then they are all baptized all at the same time. I'm not so sure about that, you know, so we need to be very careful there. Any other comment? Yes, Arnold, is there a question online? Uh, not online, but uh, I had a question. Yes. Um, so my question is uh, probably to take us on a different uh, line with regards to children who are brought up, whether in um, the household of faith or not. But my question is in assurance, uh, there is a call for uh, us to examine ourselves. Yes. There is... Uh, Paul speaks about that in 1 Corinthians uh, 11. Then also in 2 Corinthians 13, he speaks on that saying that examine yourself to see whether you're in the household faith. Uh, and so my question was, um, maybe if you could kindly expound on that, on the biblical understanding of introspection, so that maybe if somebody 
uh, looks to themselves and they find that they are doing pretty well, uh, they should not have maybe self-confidence. And on the other hand, if um, they are not okay, they should also run to the Lord. Um, could you speak more on that, on the, how we should, in, uh, in our examining ourselves, we should remain biblical in, in prospection? So when we will be talking about, I'll be talking about um, um, negligence and all that as we move on. Uh, in other words, that's a question that I will address as time goes. But if you could just text me the question, I could deal with it. But it seems to me like something that I would, I'll be de dealing with later. All right, I thought that we would go to the next, uh, uh, the next aspect, that assurance is infallible, but it's already, it's already 10. So let's just leave it there, and then we can pick it up from there next Sunday. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you that, Lord, we can indeed have assurance. Um, be convic uh, convinced and be certain of your working of grace in us. And this is something that we desire, and this is something that we pray for, the Lord more and more, each one of us will be assured that we are truly saved if we're indeed saved. Uh, help us now as we gather for worship later in an hour's time. Continue to tune our hearts to sing your prayers. And help us to live for your glory in holiness, godliness. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.